Hey, y'all. Welcome to Cross Politic. It's the Sunday special. Good to see you on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. As you can see, I'm in the studio. Knox is gone. Toby's gone. I'm actually going to be gone, too. We're going to be in Fort Worth with our one of our first live show on our Liberty Tour, uh, and it's sold out. So the, the next best thing you can do is you can see us in South Dakota on April 7th uh, in crosspolitic.com forward slash Liberty Tour is where you can find out more information. And this show is actually going to be we're going to drop you in to to nate wilson uh talking about why christian art shouldn't suck and uh this was at our rapid city conference uh in 2021 and and so this is a reminder that our conference is coming up october 6th through 8th here in 2022 in knoxville and pay attention reserve your calendar dates and pay attention uh, as details come out registration should be live actually probably in the coming week or two so look forward to seeing you guys there i hope you guys enjoy this talk it's really great talk from uh my friend nate wilson and uh take it to heart we should try to do much better than the accusations of our enemies we should try to surpass those things. So we do this. We have, and this is, this is sad, you have, you have people accuse women of thinking that, you know, well, that they say that motherhood is a stupid calling and they accuse you of only wanting this stupid calling and you're going to stay at home and raise kids and, you know, you, you never get to tap into all of your potential, yada, yada, yada. Think of all the slander about motherhood that exists in our culture, and there's a lot of it. And then... Think through how much of that has gotten into your own brain and how little you respect the incredible difficulty of that task and how you think things like, eh, I don't know, I don't know that I need to really know stuff or learn stuff or study stuff because that's a boy thing, right? Because they've accused us of partitioning intelligence and education by gender. They've accused us of that, so we're going to embrace it. We're not going to educate our daughters as much. They don't need it. Why? Are they brood mares? Is that really what they are? You're going to take that accusation and make it true? Uh, for a long time when I taught college freshman rhetoric at New St. Andrews College, I would, I would always encounter some uh, female student who would say, when things got really hard, would come to my office hours and say, do I really need this? Do I really need to study hard? I mean, I'm just going to be a mom. And I would always want to throw a fit in that moment. Because just a mom is one of my least favorite phrases in the world. It's like, you know what your husband does? Something stupid. Like, really? So we, we go out there and... You know, if we're, if we're pursuing this, this biblical model, uh, we're going to go out there and we're going to try to feed the family. We're going to try to provide for our family, which means I'll go do stuff for money. You know, I'm going to build a cabinet for somebody else. I'm going to sell a mortgage. I'm going to drive a garbage truck. I'm going to do whatever I have to to keep putting food on that table. I'm not going to prioritize personal fulfillment. If I start prioritizing my own personal fulfillment, then I'm sucking as a dad, as a husband. If I am prioritizing my family and sacrificing myself for my family, I don't care if I'm doing something sort of meaningless. I want it to be meaningful. 
I want it to be meaningful, but the most important thing, if all that goes away, I will show up, I will mow your grass, I will gladly mow your lawn to feed my family. And that is where the fulfillment's going to be. And in a room this size, there are a bunch of guys who are doing that. They're doing the thing to put food on the table. They're going to mow the grass, they're going to cut down the tree, they're going to plow the earth, they're going to drive the truck, they're going to do what they have to do to feed their families. That's not personal fulfillment. Now, we somehow have this reputation going for men that we're all chasing our dreams and that a woman who raises children is not. Right? She's trapped. She's just a mom. She wants to be like those men who have to go mow the grass or work as a bank teller or sell insurance. She, too, could pursue that. Rather than handcrafting the childhoods of some immortal souls, rather than this performance art that God has given us where you're going to take people who never stop aging and growing and you are given their early chapters and God says, here, your little eternal sisters and brothers, go ahead, you write those chapters. Dad's mowing grass. And you can have mom looking at this being like, I don't know, that, that grass mowing thing. I always have thought that bank tellers were cute. Really fulfilling over there. It's like, here's this eternal task with eternal consequences. Dad is just trying to get enough peanut butter to shove in their faces that they keep expanding. Like, that's what he's doing. And you're the one creating this atmosphere, this marination in this home. You're the one nurturing, and admoni- you know, nurturing them in the admonition of the Lord. This is, you're, the, you're the one doing that. You're the one crafting these early chapters of these eternal stories. So God says, here, write chapter one, write chapter two, all the way through 18. Let's go. You do it. And you can look sideways at what those men are doing and think, well, that's fantastic. So I'd always have these girls say, I'm just going to be a mom. I don't need to be smart. I don't need to be educated. It's, it's infuriating. And I told more than a few of them that if I would just have a stack of paper on my desk that just said, for breeding purposes only, and I'm going to tape it to your back just so everybody knows. Like, don't try to have a conversation. Don't expect her to have any insight or to care about the world that God made because, well, she's just going to be a mom. A, it's gross to think of motherhood that way. It's also moronic. And B, what moms do, C actually at this point, not B, C, what moms do is so much more potent than what fathers are doing. So much more. Fathers are the engines. We are the ones trying to provide the material, the raw material to those moms who are able to then craft these early chapters of eternal stories. Do not take the slander of the world, then adopt it or believe it in any way. Do not believe that men are chasing their dreams and women who decide to stay at home and raise children are not. Do not think that the guy over there just trying to make money every month is somehow fulfilled and the woman who's actually trying to get an internal return is somehow shorted in her task. It's sad how quickly we adopt slander as our operating system. Another really important aspect of not sucking is attempting to be salt and light and yeast in this world as opposed to cannon fodder. 
Strangely, every time mankind invents a new way to kill each other, we poetically yearn for the old way, as if it was more beautiful. So we, we can look back and yearn for the last cavalry charge, which for the Brits, I think happened in 1917 in Palestine, and it's like, oh, that was such a great and glorious time. There were people who yearned for the old way when it was knights on horseback and big, you know, enormous cast iron wood stoves riding around. And then the English longbow showed up and like, oh, that's tacky. Now a blacksmith can shoot a knight off his horse. That's just not poetic. It's not lovely anymore. And we move on to the longbow. And we get sad about cavalry charges. And even now, it's like, oh, man, drone strikes are so soulless. We should make movies about how hard it is to grapple with the issues of drone strikery. You know, just, and the soullessness of, from, you know, from a long ways away, without having to send somebody down there. It's like, oh, for the poetry of kicking indoors. Once again. We, for some reason, we, we do this. But we do this spiritually, too, with, like, formal debates, Van Til Bonson debates. We, we want unbelievers to stand still and fight us again on stage and have interested people show up. They won't. Like, times they have a changed. Things have moved on. The Battle of Culloden, 1746, was the last great Highland charge. Basically, the, the downstream equivalent of what the Picts used to do way back when, they would just paint themselves blue, get naked, and run at the Romans. But by 1746, things were a little more genteel. You had the Highland feudal system going. This was the last gasp of the Highland feudal system, and it was the last Highland charge. That beautiful, poetic thing when all the Scots got together and yelled and ran straight at the enemy. And so they were, they were a little overmatched. There was about 6,000 of the Jacobites, the Scots, running in about 8,000 Brits. And this is what could be known as a very bad idea. So they were outnumbered by 2,000, but that won't matter because we're Scottish. We're going to run at them, and we're big, and we're scary, and we're going to yell. And that is, in a group like this, that tends to be the kind of thing that plucks the heartstrings of men. It's like, oh, we might have been wearing dresses, but... The swords were huge. We yelled super loud, and we ran straight at them, right up the middle. That's, that's how it should be done. And we have this impulse to do that now in culture war. Let's take our smaller group, let's take our subculture, and let's all run screaming at them on Facebook. That'll work. And this is that question of salt, light, yeast in the culture or cannon fodder. Do you want to run at the British like the Jacobites did at Culloden? And what ended up happening is the, the Brits at that point were just a little bit more regimented, you know, like a bunch of soulless, you know, lacking poetry serfs. They lined up in tight rows. And they stood there with their rifles and bayonets and they watched the Scots come running at them, and they had this little technique which shouldn't have been allowed. Should they? Well, first they had artillery, so there's that. But this little technique in actual close quarters combat should have been forbidden, just like the English longbow, the knights. Chivalry is dead when a blacksmith can shoot me off my horse. 
But here, they did something very simple. They said, hey, don't fight the guy in front of you. Stab the guy to your right. Bayonet the guy who's attacking the guy next to you. Because he's looking at him, screaming and running straight. So just bayonet him in the ribs. And trust the guy to your left that he's going to do it for you. Don't worry about this screaming blue guy right in front of you. He'll get him. You get that guy. About 300 Brits died and about 2,000 Scots. And that was the end of the Highland way of life. So sad. We could all write poems. And there are poems for things like that and for the last cavalry charge. The U.S. did a, I had a cavalry charge, I think, in 42. I don't know how that lasted, but we weren't as into it at the time. There are times when tactics change, strategy changes, and it is grosser than the old way of defeating people. That does happen. Sherman's march to the sea is a perfect example of that. The way Sherman then turned and used the exact same tactics on the tribes of the West like the Navajo and others, were, they, they received the exact same treatment that the South did. And it was gross, and it was ugly, and it was a new way of fighting, but it was actually an old way of fighting. It's like an old, old way of fighting, just total warfare. We cannot be cannon fodder. Do not raise your children, and do not you yourself just go running at the enemy. Be intelligent, be thoughtful. Break the stereotype. Listen. Actually hear out your opponent. Actually be able to accurately reflect their position. Stop building a little straw man, a little scarecrow, and then destroying it in front of your opponent and saying, see how stupid you are? No, accurately and fairly represent them. That'll make you extremely unique in our culture right now. Nobody's doing that on either side. Nobody does that. Nobody says, so if I understand you correctly, tell me if I'm wrong. Is this your position that I can now honestly state? Can I state it even better than you can? And then have a conversation. Behave that way. But before that, like just live a beautiful life. Like just live beautifully, live sacrificially, feed people, mow their grass, offer to help them out with their leaves. Just live beautifully. And by the time the conversation comes, have it honestly. Hear them out. Have it on a bedrock of affection. Don't expect anything fruitful to happen in Facebook comments ever. And this is where I'm talking to Gabe. <laughs> where is I'll heckle, I'll heckle him later. It won't happen. Nothing fruitful is going to happen in a Facebook comment thread. That is not culture war. That's called not taking out the trash. Get off of Facebook. Go do the thing you were going to do. Take out the trash. Do something fruitful. Invite people over for dinner. Barbecue. Feed them meat and pour them good whiskey. And you will have way more of an impact than if you chase a thousand people in some comment threads. Do not set yourself up to be cannon fodder. Do not set your children up to be cannon fodder. Do not paint yourselves blue and run at the enemy. Don't do it. Once you like, 
Just totally separate yourself from that kind of cultural engagement, which is not cultural engagement. That's just squeaking. Don't be shrill. Don't be indignant. Don't be wound up. Be calm. Be reasonable. Be a tactician. As soon as you separate yourself from that, how should you be behaving? This is where I'm going to pivot into some discussion of rhetoric, just on a kind of a broad level. The person who's laughing and happy and joyful, A, is winning. The person who's the most joyful is winning. The person who's indignant, angry, upset is losing. The higher the pitch, the bigger the loss. So you think about those videos that went around after Trump won the first time. You know, people on their knees screaming in Portland. No. And how much glee Trump supporters got from that. But then the, the opposite happened when Trump lost. And everybody's running around screaming about cheating and, and all that kind of stuff and being upset. And people are what uh, we would refer to in our home and our extended family when toddlers are misbehaving as losing the bubble. I don't know the origin, but just losing the bubble. I assume it's from like a level tipping, but just losing the bubble. People just losing the bubble, freaking out. Whoever's freaking out is losing. They're not just losing the bubble, they're losing the fight. They're losing in their cultural struggle. So a couple of real basic principles there. Don't be shrill. Don't be upset. Don't be angry ever. Just don't. Watch the movie, some old west saloon, and one guy comes in running his mouth, all hot-headed. Is he the hero? No, then there's that guy sitting there real quiet, like not saying anything, just playing with his toothpick. Is he the hero? Yes. Which one's gonna win? The dude doing all the trash talking? The real hot-headed, upset, shrill guy? Never wins. This is God's world, he never wins. It's not gonna happen that way. You want to be the one who's slow to speak, who is reasonable, and when you do fight, you fight like the ends. When you do go to war, you're not gonna back down, and there's no stone that can stand against you, but you will have never lost the bubble. You will have been calm, you will have been thoughtful, and you will have been a tactician. You will have chosen the strategic point, and you will have taken it without freaking out. So, when it comes to rhetoric and you're assessing any situation, whether it's just your neighborhood, your extended family, your, your role in this culture, there's a rhetorical trinity of proof. And you may have heard these terms before, and I use them constantly in my life. So this is not just abstract. Trying to convince college freshmen that I use them constantly in my life was a little more difficult. But hopefully you'll believe me. Uh, the rhetorical trinity of proof is ethos, pathos, and logos. So ethos being credibility, authority, pathos being emotion, emotional resonance, logos being logic. Now realize that every one of you and every person in this world is a narratival creature making narratival choices from narratival motivations, which means nobody is ever being motivated by logic. Nobody. They're always being motivated by their affections, by their emotions, by authorities in their life. Basically, ethos, under ethos, you're gonna stick a lot of faith. There's a lot of faith over there under ethos. They're always being motivated there. And then they use logic to try to defend their position. 
they arrive at positions via ethos and pathos and then try to defend the position via logos, logic. So if you sally forth with your logic, just know that you're motivating no one. When Tolkien took C.S. Lewis to the top of a hill in a birch grove with the breeze blowing under the moon, that's all pathos. When he takes them to that hill and says, you love myths, but why do you hate Christianity? Christianity is just a true myth. Myth, the way he grabbed that affection for myths and the credibility of myths, ethos and pathos. Lewis, I don't know if you know this, but C.S. Lewis was an intelligent person. And yet it wasn't the logic that got him. He didn't receive anything logical. A friend first was a friend to him, was friendly to him, and then later took him onto a hill by moonlight to tell him about the true myth, knowing that he already had affection for mythology. And Lewis is converted. And then the logic comes, and he can make sense of it, and it's all coherent, and he can defend it logically. But the thing that moved him was not the logic. And know that that's true of you and that's true of every other human. There are a lot of people in your lives who would be a lot more motivated, a lot more moved by a really nice steak coming off the grill and a glass of fantastic wine than they would ever be moved by anything logical you might have to say. And when you do that and when you feed them, and when you're kind to them, and you invest in them, and you show them something beautiful, if you say, hey, neighbor, I actually just got the best whiskey I've ever tasted in my life, and I really need to share this. I need you to have a shot. That's kind of a tough sell, right? If you go over there and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about how you're going to hell. Eh. But if you say, no, I have the best whiskey I've ever tasted, and I need you to taste it. I, I need to share this experience. What you're doing is investing in ethos. As you build those relationships up, you're investing in credibility, you're investing in affections, pathos, and eventually you're gonna write checks on that. Think of it as like bank accounts. You're making deposits in ethos and pathos. When you're in the Facebook threads, you've got no checking account at all. There's no relationship. It's just people yelling at each other from opposite sides of a river, and nothing being accomplished. So this trinity of proof, ethos, pathos, and logos, it's important for you to realize that ethos and pathos are proofs. And in a place like this, a lot of people are gonna squirm at that. They'll think that logic is where you prove something. Ethos and pathos, can, they can't be proofs. Those aren't proofs. You can't prove something with authority and credibility. Yeah, you can. Because what is proof? What is it? What is the nature of proof? What is it? And I would say, I would argue, and this would be a whole other talk, I'm just going to kind of hit it and run, that to prove something is to obligate belief. To place an obligation of belief on somebody. If you have obligated belief, then you have proven it. Now, you can never, if you step into Descartes' world and think that you can prove the impossibility of the contrary, that you could ever heighten up your logical proof to the point where they couldn't even postulate another theory. Like, well, we're creatures of faith. We have to live by faith. All of you believe that your mom was your mom by faith. 
you don't remember it. It's a faith situation. All of you trust your own eyes by faith. Why do you trust your eyes? Because God gave them to you. You trust them. Your ears, your reason, all of these things are built on faith. You trust your intellect by faith. By faith in your intellect? Better not. By faith in the God who gave it to you? Great. You trust your eyes, you trust your intellect, you trust all these things by faith. We can place people under the obligation of belief by means of ethos, pathos, and logos. You can speak a word into somebody's life that binds their conscience, and there's an obligation of belief there. You didn't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt the way we think of proof. It's something else. So as you look at any relationship, from yourself to your neighborhood, to your family, to your country, you need to be thinking about ethos, pathos, and logos. And Logos is that last piece. You need to think about who you are. Assess long-term strategy versus short-term tactics. So what I said about being shrill and angry, those are like short-term tactics issues. Long-term strategy is live a beautiful life and live it year after year after year in a row. Be faithful to your wife. Be faithful to your kids. Live beautifully for decades until you go into the ground. That's long-term strategy. Write those early chapters in your children's lives with grace and with that beautiful living, that kindness and that sacrificial mowing of the lawns or whatever you have to do in order to put food on the table. And in short-term tactics, don't get upset, don't be shrill, don't be indignant. Manifest the fruit of the Spirit. It's as simple as that, right? That's easy. Manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Stay out of fights that do not matter, which is very different than fights you cannot win. You have to be willing to be in fights you can't win when you think you are called to be in those. But stay out of those pointless fights that gain nothing. Actually do a cost-benefit analysis, do a risk assessment, and say, what am I jeopardizing? I'm jeopardizing this relationship, and for what gain? What do I stand to possibly gain for that person? by having this fight right now? And if the answer is nothing or very little, shut up. Don't get into that fight. Let that one go. No, no reason to grab that passing dog. Just let it, let it go. Now, in, in any kind of situation, long-term and short-term, but especially this is, this is more applied to the short-term, the ethos, pathos, logos framework should help you think through this. But also, there's a triangle, because threes are great. There's a triangle that you should, you should use to assess any conversation and any engagement, any apologetic engagement, any gospel engagement, any political engagement, and that is answering a couple basic questions. The first one is, who are you to them? Who are you and where are you to them? That's the ethos and pathos question, right? So there's a person or there's an audience and then there's me, and there's a relationship. Who are they is the next question. Who are they, where are they? Who are you, where are you? And in their position, in your position, that, that relationship is charged with ethos and pathos. And then, because Aristotle did get some things right, you actually have to then try to think about where they ought to be. It's like, I'm here, they're there, where ought they to be? They should be here. And then you have to try to discover the available means of persuasion to get them from here to there. Which is another way of saying, what do I have that I could give them that they need? 
they're here, they should be here, they'll be much happier, more joyful, content if I can get them to this place. But what do I have? What do I have that could possibly get them there? And if the answer is nothing, then you move along. But you assess it and think, man, what could I give them? Do we, should we have them to dinner? What? Like, should I help them out with whatever tasks around the house? Should I offer them assistance? You know, financial assistance? Should I offer them physical assistance? Should I offer them food? Or should I offer them an argument, a syllogism? Do they want to have coffee and discussion? Like, what can I do that would actually move them? Well, my cousin's really big and he's got a baseball bat, so I could offer to break his kneecaps if he didn't change his mind. It's like, and as you, you move through those Aristotelian questions, like, should I use violence? <laughs> should I scream on Facebook or whatever it is? You start to rule things out. Who are you and what are you? Who are they and what are they and where are they? And what are the available means of persuasion to get them to move? And you'll discover often that you don't have any. Often, it's like, you know what? I'm just going to Johnny Appleseed this. I'm just going to plant a seed of kindness. I'm just going to do something that's unexpected. I'm just going to be outside the stereotype, and I'm going to move on. That's all I can do right here. And hopefully somebody else will reap the harvest. Years from now, somebody else will reap the harvest. I'm just going to try to do something nice. But as you think through this, who are you? Some random guy on Facebook. Who are they? A government official. Who wants to win the next election? What available means of persuasion do I have? I'm going to scream at them with a lot of grammatical errors. You won. They changed their mind. Said no one ever. Like, no. What you're doing is venting your spleen, right? Which doesn't benefit you or them. Don't do that. So if you actually move through your life and you're like, man, my sister totally disagrees with me on this. There's tension there. Well, I've got shared past, I've got ethos, I've got pathos. What can I do that would be unexpected? What could I do that could move her? What's the equivalent of Tolkien walking Lewis out onto a hilltop in the moonlight? What's the thing you can do that's unexpected? What's the thing that you can do that invests in your ethos and your pathos before you start spending it with your logos? And all of this comes down to being better people. And this is where I, I usually talk, and so I'm going to condense it a little bit. God is terrifyingly casual about giving us all lives, and terrifyingly casual about giving us all obligations. With my first son, I remember standing in the birthing center with this pink human in a bucket, you know, crooked in my arm, it's gonna click into my car, and I'm standing here thinking, do I not even need a permit? Like, is this, how is this allowed? Like, how, the stakes here are enormous. Like, I have to do a background check to buy a 22 rifle, but here, have a baby. Don't screw it up. And so you take the baby and you're sitting here thinking, really, God, this is like there's no permitting process. There's nothing like this. I'm just going to take this undying soul. I'm going to take this little, you know, bobblehead that's going to live forever. I'm going to take him home. 
and do right by him 24-7 until he's on his own two feet. And later on, God is going to say, here's another one. And you're like, but this one's still so small. <laughs> and I, I have a very visceral memory that I'm going to share with you right now just because I can't help it. Um, of holding number two, this little girl, my beautiful little girl is currently a senior in high school, holding her, bouncing her, she's pink and wobbly. You know, she's still not really holding her head up great. On the phone with a friend. And I'm chatting with him and my wife comes over and holds up a positive pregnancy test. And I'm on the phone bouncing this baby girl and being a wise, a wise husband. I turn the phone up and say, why would you save that? That's disgusting. <laughs> Trying to carry on the other conversation and she says, this is new. <laughs> and I just stopped, looked down, doing math, <laughs> trying to figure this out. And so we went into the hospital with our second daughter on our first daughter's first birthday. It was like, whew, and they have a neutral day between them, the way labor was gnarly and everything else. But there's a neutral day, but we were there, and the doctor was telling my wife, get into the hospital now, and she was saying, can I please make a birthday pancake for my one-year-old first? And he was like, fast, let's go. But anyway, no permitting process at all. None. Like, here's a little toddler villain running around channeling Rousseau, just being awful. His one-year-old little sister, very sensitive, being offended by everything he's doing. My wife can't really stand up because her back goes out. New baby showing up. Here we have three undying immortal souls, uh, and we're trying to keep them from killing each other with blocks. <laughs> like this, stop hitting people, stop biting, no biting, no hitting. It's just Lord of the Flies, just down here. And God says, take care of it. Here, I entrust you with that. And that happened to all of our parents. And that's happened to a lot of you based on the, the population of short people I see running around this conference. Like God has given you these siblings, these children, to actually craft to train, to mold into faithful image bearers, to mold into men and women who will judge angels. You handle that. Whoo, it's insane. And then what do we do? We freak out when they spill milk. We say, hey child, I want to uh, show you what true fatherhood is. I'm going to reflect your father in heaven by getting very angry right now. I'm going to have a short fuse or I'm going to have no time for you. I'm going to come home from work and pass out in a lazy boy because I'm tired. And that's how I'm going to image the father in heaven to you. Oops. And we do it all the time. We suck at that all the time. But there is grace. And one of the things they need to see is you repenting. One of the most important lessons for a little kid is their parents apologizing and seeking their forgiveness. Like seeing themselves, holding themselves to the same standard. 
that they want those kids to learn to live by. So this is the, the ultimate conclusion here is just be better people, which means be better characters, which means write better dialogue when you're sitting in traffic. When you're in a minivan and somebody else cuts you off, you have an opportunity to write dialogue in all the little kids back there in the buckets. You're writing dialogue that will be written in concrete for all of time. There's no edits on these life stories. You can't go back and say, hey, like some celebrity or athlete who says that really doesn't reflect who I am. I know I said things that I should not have said. I'm embarrassed and ashamed because that does not reflect who I am. As opposed to that reflects exactly who I am perfectly. And please forgive me. Out of the dark abundance of my heart, I said that. So handcraft those stories. Be better characters. Be joyful. Reflect joy. Know that, and this is a, an excursus, but is also, I think, some of the most important stuff, is know that you're supposed to reflect God's personality. Your job is to image God to your children, to image God to your neighbors, to image God to everybody you come into contact with. And if you really study him and try to get to know him, you find out that that's awfully uncomfortable because he is extremely sacrificial, extremely generous, extremely forgiving, thank you God, extremely forgiving, and also constantly playing jokes, constantly misbehaving, inventing squirrels, ladybugs, putting all sorts of cheat codes and secrets throughout reality for us. And you think about the stuff that God laces into the world and how you need to discover it and celebrate it and be joyful the way he is. You want to reflect the same personality that put a sack of milk swinging under a cow and some brave individual that was the first one to say, I'm gonna squeeze it. <laughs> no, really. Hank, I can get under there. Like, I'm gonna crawl under here. Give me that bucket. I'm gonna go squeeze this sack under this large thing. And then we're gonna let it sit and I'm gonna skim the, the fat part off the top. And there's this giant grass with some sugar and some beans in South America. And we're gonna find some snow. We're gonna mix this stuff together. And it's gonna be amazing. But that whole ice cream experience was dependent on that brave soul crawling under there. And God put it there. God put that secret there. Are you the kind of dad that hides a piece of chocolate under your kid's pillow? Yes. Is God the kind of father who hides a piece of chocolate under his kid's pillow? Yes, he is. Are you the kind of dad who says, I don't know, some animals in our life would be a little complex. It'd be hard right now. We'd have to feed them and they poop. And then God says, is he the kind of father who holds back on the animals? No, not at all. You know, and you, and you say to your kids, we all want to say to our kids, how about you have a pet rock? A pet rock sounds just about perfect. The noise, the joy, the thunderstorms. I was telling one dad who was, who was talking to me about letting his son stay up late before even driving here. It was crazy late, reading him a story. It's like, 
Not all the time. It's like, kids do need to sleep. But they also need that kind of thing where they're sitting up at midnight eating ice cream in footer pajamas listening to dad tell a story. Those moments, those are the things that imprint. Those are the things that tell them. What is fatherhood? Fatherhood is safety. Fatherhood is protection. Are you the kind of dad that when you sit down to watch something with your kids, they're slowly crawling into your lap? Because it's a little bit scary, you're kind of pushing the edge. They start next to you, but they end up with your arms around them. It's like, that's fatherhood. That's how you want to, that's what you want to image. You want to be joyful. You want to be jovial. You want to be, you know, the dad who takes, you, takes the kids out on the porch during the thunderstorm. Like, you want to be that dad. You want to be the mom who laughs at spiders and says, aren't they amazing? Because God likes them. He made a few. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that talk with Nate. It was really good. Take it to heart. Apply it wherever God has your gifts, strengths, and abilities at. Uh, make sure you download our app. And then uh, this next week, we got some great shows coming out, coming next week with uh, uh, Pastor Wilson, Dr. Peter McCullough, Chad Prather. So be paying attention to all that content dropping next week. Until then, go love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself and baptize your babies, whatever Knox does, and go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politics.